Um, the, the lesson today kind of tried to break it down. It is on chapter 5 of your textbook, The Journey into God's Word. Um, so we're going to be following along today. I didn't print any notes because basically we're going to be using the book there. Um, so, but I did break down the lesson in two, that one chapter into two lessons so we can have some time to discuss and to really process this. Um, and so let's get it started with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. They are, uh, they're still alive today and it still speaks to us. Lord, I do pray that as we reflect on all these different texts uh, as an exa examples that we need for understanding the context of these passages, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would um, just enliven our understanding of who you are, what you expect of us, Pray that you will bless also our discussion later um, about these things and the importance of these things as we study the Bible. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. You know, um, one of the things that I, I want to encourage you with this class is that you will be able to, to identify this process as you, as you listen to someone preaching. So it be it me or other people here, and you're like, oh, I know what he's talking about there. You know, the chiasm that we learned last week it was mentioned um, in the sermon. So it, it, will meet, it will make sense to you why the biblical author decided to write the things the way he did. All right? Now, if you had to choose a favorite Bible character, who would that be? All right, let's just hear some takers here. Joseph, Daniel, Daniel. David, David. Mm -hmm. Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> you get more score there, <laughs> yeah, well, and nobody said Paul yet, but um, some might, and his passion for serving Jesus Christ continues to challenge us, right? as many of the other biblical characters that you have been uh, mentioning there. In our New Testament, we have 13 letters that were written or traditionally attributed to Paul. And in the last chapter of the very, the very last letter that he wrote, 2 Timothy, so how about we go there? Um, 2 Timothy, uh, and we're looking at chapter 4. Um, Verses 6 through 8. So he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So as Paul concludes the letter, he repeats a simple message to Timothy, his disciple, his friend and co-worker, and he's is basically rushing him 
make every effort to come soon to me. <laughs> In verse 21, if you skip a little bit there, he says again, make every effort to come to me before winter. Um, so we can tell that Paul wants Timothy to come visit him, but only an understanding of the historical context lying behind these words can reveal the depth and the emotion that Paul is trying to convey here. Most evangelical scholars believe that Timothy is ministering in Ephesus. You, you remember the context was we've been preaching through 1 Timothy. So Timothy is in the church of Ephesus while Paul is imprisoned in Rome. And it, this is not uh, the um, kind of a light uh, prison, imprisonment that he had when, where he was in house arrest, basically. He, he's now in jail uh, and, and just waiting for the moment where his sentence will be determined. And, you know, uh, we know the end of the story. He does, does die in that um, imprisonment. So... Um, so here's Paul in Rome and Timothy in Ephesus. They're hundreds of miles apart. Uh, travel by ship, and I, I put here some illustrations just so you have an idea and a picture. Travel by ship was considered dangerous from mid-September through the end of May and was completely closed down from early November and early March. So you will understand why Paul is saying, come before winter, because, you, you know, there'll be no way you're going to be stuck here. Um, both Paul and Timothy know this, of course, and if Paul sent a letter to 2 Timothy by Tychicus in the summer, then Timothy probably has little time to make the very long journey to Rome. So it's just an illustration here of the historical background especially in this passage, it helps us to see what Paul is really saying to his young friend. It is as if he's saying, put things in order in Ephesus and get on a ship as soon as you can. If you don't leave now, before winter sets in, the shipping lanes will shut down and it won't arrive in time. Timothy, do your best to get here before they put me to death. Come quickly, my friend, before it is too late. That is what he's trying to say. So knowing the historical cultural context of this passage makes it come alive and with emotion and intensity. Paul is not merely asking Timothy to come visit. He's more like a father pleading with his son to come to see him before his death. So to grasp God's word, we must understand the meaning of the text and the context and apply that meaning to our lives. Context takes two major forms, and one we're going to start today, the historical and cultural context, and the other one is literary context that will be on the next chapter, chapter 6. But don't get there quite yet. We'll have two classes on this topic here. Um, why do we need to bother studying the historical, cultural background of a passage? Hmm? Is it really important? What exactly is involved in studying the historical context? So the goal of the, the chapter that we're in is to show how to study this 
historical cultural context of a passage and to persuade you that knowing the background of a text help clarify its meaning and reveal its relevance to your life. I mean, you just listen to some preachers and the explanations they come up with the Bible that you're, you're like, what? what? You know, if the, the, the writer was listening to that interpretation, they'll probably be like, what, what are you talking about? That's not at all what I wrote. <laughs> um, so we need to understand what were your circumstances and the different things involved in that text. We have so far kind of just gone in depth and observing the text. We haven't read anything outside the Bible yet to, to get to those conclusions. We're just observing the text and seeing how it is structured, what things repeat themselves, what um, you know, cause and effect is happening. But now we, we're going to need some other things to get a better understanding. Sometimes those things will be right there, right? Like Paul, some clues here where Paul said, come before winter. So we, we can know the context just by reading the book or reading the greater um, part of the book, the other sections of the book. So in his commentary on the background of the Bible, uh, Craig Keener reminds us that God did not dictate most of the Bible in the first person. He did not say, because I am God, I will speak directly to everybody in all times and cultures. Instead, God, the ultimate source, spoke through human writers of Scripture. They were the immediate source to address the real-life needs of people at a particular time and at a particular culture. This is how God chose to speak. So I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. God has given us eternal principles in his word that apply to every person of every age and in every culture. Our goal in understanding God's word is to teach you how to discover and live out those principles, those theological principles. We're, we're not um, questioning whether God has given us eternally uh, relevant principles. The word is relevant for today, even though some of it was written uh, thousands of years ago. We're simply noting how God has uh, revealed his will for us. We believe that the way we approach the Bible, in other words, the way we listen to God, should match how God gave us the Bible. In other words, how he decided to speak to us. So the way we should listen is the way that he decided to um, teach us. Otherwise, we'll likely misunderstand what God is trying to say to us. Since God spoke his message in specific and historical situations, in other words, the people living in a particular, in particular places is speaking particular languages. Uh, you know, we have the Hebrew and the Greek and some Aramaic in the Old Testament. Adopting a particular way of life, we should take the ancient historical contact situation seriously. The bottom line is that we cannot simply ignore those people that lived back then. Um, it, it was written initially for them. And the Lord supervised the, the biblical writers and, and brought that word for us as well, the theological principles. 
So we should take the ancient historical cultural situation seriously. Again, because the way we listen to God, our interpretive approach, must honor the way God chose to communicate, we should not be so arrogant and prideful as to think that God cared nothing about the original audience, but was merely using them to get a message to us. We should pay attention to what God wrote through the human authors. Let me give you another example here. Turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 5. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, we don't get to decide what the author meant by his words. Um, Paul is giving some instruction here, instructions um, on verse 9 um, that he, he's mentioning a letter that he wrote before um, to them, to the Corinthians. But they misunderstood him. They thought he was saying something, but he was saying something totally different. And here's what he said. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And then, verse 10, what does he say? I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or the covetous or the swindlers or the idolaters. For then, you would have to go out of the world. You know, uh, um, people read that and they thought, oh, he's talking about we shouldn't associate with anybody that has this kind of behavior. He says, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with a so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous, an idolatrous, or reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. So you see the point? It is the author that gets to determine what he meant by what he wrote, not us. <laughs> it wasn't the Corinthians, it isn't us. Um, now, I understand that these, these things are sometimes hard because we're so far removed of that place in time, you know, and even, you know, with the English language. Um, people might not know what they meant back then. The, the language progresses, the language evolves. So some of those verbs or those expressions might not make a whole lot of sense to us. So we, we got to find ways where we can find some clues, right? Well, they were, were there any other texts written during that time? Well, there were. Uh, and it is really helpful when you, when you see those the same wording being used and like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Um, so think again about how the interpretive journey moves from the meaning of the text for the biblical audience across the river of differences. Example, time. So it's a few things that you need to consider. The time that was written, the place, uh, the culture for the situation involved. By means of the princip principalizing bridge, remember the, our interpretive journey, and there's that bridge that uh, connects the river of differences, the river of the context, 
Um, and so that principializing bridge will lead us to the application of the theological principles in our lives. So God's word to other people before it became God's word to us in this sense. God cared deeply about the original hearers and spoke to them within their own historical contact, cultural situation. But God also cares deeply about us and wants to speak to us. The time-bound message of Scripture contains eternally relevant principles that we can discover and live it out. Now, we don't want to put the, uh, what do you call it, the, the cart before the cattle, right? <laughs> um, you want to do things in the right order. It, it starts with them, and then it moves into uh, to us. So back to the question here, why bother to become familiar with the original historical context? Well, we do so because it offers us uh, a window into what God was saying to the biblical audience. Since we live in a very different context, we must recapture God's original intended meaning as reflected in the text and framed in the ancient historical context. So our task as students of the word is to discover the relevance by doing the contextual homework, right? to, to do some research. And we have so many resources. So next week, I'm going to bring some of them, you know, if you're curious to know, like, hey, you can look here, you could look here. Obviously, those things are not a scripture, so they're not authoritative. They might give you some guidance, but they are not authoritative. Um, so just a heads up here. But this leads us to a crucial interpretive principle. All right, and here it is. For our interpretation of any biblical text to be valid, it must be consistent with the historical cultural context of that text. If our interpretation would not have made sense back then, we probably are on the wrong track. These scholars, Fee and Stewart, rightly emphasize that the true meaning of the biblical text for us is what God originally intended to mean when what's first is spoken. Did you catch that? What God wanted to tell us, it is the same meaning of what he meant to say when he first spoke it. We must first determine what it meant, a text meant in their own town, before we can determine what it means and how we should apply the meaning in our own time and culture. So our goal then is to understand the historical context of the passage as clearly as possible in order to understand the meaning of that passage. All right, so what are we talking about when I, we say historical cultural context? Well, generally speaking, this kind of context involves the biblical writer, so the author of the book. We want to get information on who wrote it, the biblical audience, who did he write to? Um, and any historical cultural elements touched by the passage itself. Um, there are some passages that you will come across as like, this is weird. But then you might read other, other sources and they'll, they'll explain that tradition. Also, it was of the culture during that time to do this kind of thing. Um, and we're going to touch on some of these in a little bit here. So 
Historical context relates to just about anything outside the text that will help you understand the text itself, what life was like for the Israelites when they wandered in the, in the desert, uh, what the Pharisees believed about the Sabbath, where Paul was when he wrote Philippians. So the literary context that we're going to see on chapter 6 also relates to the context, but it is within the book. It is the context of the book, but you can find it in the book. Right? You don't need these outward, outside sources. All right. The first one is a biblical writer, the biblical writer. Because God chose to work through human authors as their immediate source for the inspired word, the more you know about the human author, the better. So try to find as much as you can about the writer's background. So when you study one of Paul's letters, for example, it is helpful to know before the Lord radically changed his life, he used to get papers from the Jewish high priest authorizing him to imprison Christians. We have to remember that, that he was such a vile person. He was a murderer. This explains, um, he persecuted the church out of a misdirected zeal to serve God. So this explains why the early Christians feared Paul for a time after his conversion. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 21, um, it says, All those hearing him, hearing Paul preach and teach, continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? or who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the, high, the chief priests. It, it also it helps us understand why when we were studying 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, Paul refers to himself as the worst of sinners. Why? Because he remembers his past. He, he remembers his background. And then he says, you know, that's why I enjoy grace so much. Well, that, that's what Christ said, right? He, he said that those that sin much love much, right? Those that have been forgiven much love much. We don't often think of Paul, a man whom God used to change the world, as a struggling with horrible memories of the things that he did before he met Christ. Paul's life is certainly a portrait of God's grace. I mean, you just imagine the memories that he had of the things he did. So still thinking about the biblical author's background, consider Amos. I have here a picture of Amos. Um, not, obviously, the real Amos. <laughs> but Amos was a prophet that preached around 760 B.C., Although Amos was from Tekoa in Judah, so he was there on the, um, on the southern kingdom. So you see this little line here that divides it. So after Solomon, the, the kingdom got divided. We had the southern kingdom in Judah and the northern kingdom in Israel. Um, he was from Judah. He was from Tekoa. And the Lord called him to preach right over there in the northern tribes, which is, you know, they had, they were, had, a, they had a rift between them. They were not um, walking together anymore. They were two, basically they became two separate peoples. 
Now, Amos um, says about himself um, in Amos 7, 14, this is probably familiar words to you, where he says, I am not a prophet, nor uh, I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. Basically, he's saying, I'm a farmer. I did not, I was not born into a family of prophets. I take care of cattle. I um, pick up figs. You know, he was really, well, well, that was his job. So Amos was not being paid to be a prophet, nor was he following his dad's footsteps. The prophetic task was completely new to him. So this astute farmer answered God's call to proclaim his message to a spiritually sick people facing God's judgment. That's why you, you, will, you will read Amos, and it, and it sounds very blunt. <laughs> it sounds very rough. Well, he's, he, he's a rough guy. <laughs> so along with knowing something about the author's background, you may also ask, when did he write, and what kind of ministry did he have? Why we're talking about 8th century B.C. prophets, do, do you remember Hosea's um, infamous wife? What was her name? Gomer. Gomer. Have you thought about Hosea's marriage uh, was linked to his ministry? The Lord expressly told him, so marry a prostitute. Because he wanted to illustrate that his heartbreaking marriage to Gomer became a vehicle to understanding and expressing the spiritual adultery that Israel committed against God. Just as Gomer had rejected Hosea, so Israel had rejected her true God, Yahweh, for pagan gods. So... Along with knowing about the writer's background in ministry, we'll also want to understand more about the specific relationships between the writer and the people that he was addressing to, who, who he was writing to. You can tell from the tone and the content of Galatians, for instance, that Paul is not happy with the churches in Galatia and their movement toward a different gospel. He even omits his customary thanksgiving at the beginning of his letter and moves directly into a rebuke. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Boy, I taught you, and I thought you got this thing down, and here you are following a gospel that is not at all what I preached to you. What happened to you? He's trying to shake them. Now, compare that to the way that he writes to the Thessalonians, all right? He's praising them for their faith and perseverance in spite of his premature separation from them as a result of persecution. He had to leave early. And he talks about, he reminds them of his motherly, like I treat you like, treated you like a mother and I treated you like a father in chapter 2. So he talked about his motherly and fatherly love for them and reassures them of his intense desire to see them again. That's a total different tone <laughs> than the one he used to the, with the Galatians. So what kind of relationship, that's a, a different, another example here, did Jonah 
had with his primary audience, the Ninevites. Um, it will remember that um, Jonah was called by the Lord to preach to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the, the Assyrian Empire back then. He tried to flee, but, you know, and ended up obeying the Lord <laughs> after much compelling. Um, but he was called to preach to the Assyrians, the, the Ninevites, right? About the same time that Amos and Hosea, this is uh, their, the same time period, were warning Israel of God's judgment soon to occur at the hands of the ominous Assyrians, Assyrians Jonah was sent to warn Nineveh. What difference does it make to know that Nineveh is the capital of Syria, of Assyria? Well, it helps to see that at the heart of the story lies Jonah's contempt for the Assyrians and his fear that God might act with compassion toward his enemies. Um, this is a picture, I think, um, it's probably part of a relief that was found in, a, um, in Babylon describing the destruction of Lachish. It was a city in, in Israel, and they were mean. They were brutal. Uh, they would impale people. Um, so this, this is who John is preaching to, these mean, bloody people. So you will understand why he would be so hesitant. Why, God, do you want me to go and talk to these people? They're massacring us. They're ruthless. They're merciless. We're so quick to judge him, right? <laughs> oh, you're disobedient prophet. <laughs> Perhaps the most important thing to know about the biblical writers then is why are they writing? Why does the author of First and Second Chronicles, for example, repeat much of Samuel and Kings? It feels like, oh, it's a, is this a repeat of what was already written in Samuel and Kings? Um, but he writes with a different purpose. Probably Ezra was the author, author of, of Chronicles. And he's writing for Israel after the exile, after they came back from Babylon. So he's trying to show that God is still very much interested in his people after judging them by the exile. He's trying to show, um, you know, for example, the chronicler seems to idealize David and Solomon by omitting anything that might tarnish their image. For example, you, you won't read about uh, David's sin with Bathsheba in Chronicles, even though he's proposing to tell David the story. Why is that he'd left that out? <laughs> is in this way, the writer reassures his audience that although God has judged his people, he still loves them and wants to use them to accomplish his purposes. All right, now let me give you an example from... The New Testament, Acts, offers another example of the need to know the writer's purposes. So if you're studying Acts chapter 28, you may wonder why Luke, uh, Luke the, the writer, um, just stops the book abruptly. It's like, well, wait a minute, I want to know what happens with Paul. <laughs> what happens with the man? 
Why does he fail to mention anything about the outcome of Paul's, Paul's trial? Because he probably knew by the time that he wrote that Paul was killed. The most likely reason goes back to Luke's purpose in writing. He wants to show the triumphant movement of the gospel that moved from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he says that the gospel kept being preached and taught unhindered. So once he accomplishes his purpose, he wraps, he wraps up very quickly. <laughs> you know, I'm done. I did what I proposed to do. What matters most to Luke is the success of the gospel message, not the personal history of one of his messengers. So let's review here a little bit what we already covered. Um, we first need to consider the biblical writer. What about him? What is the writer's background? Was he a farmer? Was he uh, you know, a prophet? Where does he come from? What city? What are that city known for? What does he write? What kind of ministry does he have? What is his relationship to the people that he is writing to or he's preaching to? And finally, why is he writing? Answer this kind of questions will give you insight into the circumstances of the biblical writer and clarify the meaning of what he, was, he has written. So another point here is the biblical audience, the biblical audience. So discovering the historical context, cultural context also involve knowing the audience and their circumstances. So take Mark's gospel, for example. This is interesting. So Mark makes a point of emphasizing the cross of Christ. Right, you see, the bulk of, the, of the, the gospel of Mark is Jesus' last week. It's just the majority of the book is that. You know, he rushes through the beginning of Jesus' ministry and then to the last week, and he spends a long time talking about it. Mark is trying to make a point to emphasize the cross of Christ and the demands of the discipleship through his gospel. Many scholars believe that Mark's original audience was the church in the vicinity of Rome. Why is this important? and that Mark was preparing them for the persecution that they would soon face at the hands of Emperor Nero in the mid-60s. So Mark was one of the first Gospels to be written. And um, so that was prior to Nero's persecution of the church. So to encourage these believers to remain faithful in the midst of suffering, Mark stresses how Jesus, our Savior, remain faithful during his time of suffering. So when you read, for instance, the Old Testament prophets, you need to know something of the general circumstances of the biblical audience. Are, are they walking faithfully with God? They are walking not faithfully toward God um, in order to make sense of the prophetic message. When studying Jeremiah, for example, it helps us to know that his prophetic ministry, and we have... Uh, Jeremiah is one of the prophets that had a, a very far and wide ministry. These are all the places that he, he's um, preached to, you know, to Syria, to, um, you know, the, where Saudi Arabia is there, to Babylon. So he was involved in all of um, some of these empires. 
So when he's studying Jeremiah, for example, it helps to know that his prophetic ministry began on 627 B.C. and ended a short time after 586 B.C. This means that Jeremiah witnessed just some key events, right? When he was in Israel during time, the time of Josiah. He was a great king who did a lot of good things for Israel. He was also there when uh, Assyria took over the northern kingdom. And he was also there with the rise of Babylon, the first siege of Jerusalem. In fact, he, he is uh, deported at some point. And then he witnessed the destruction of the nation in 586 B.C. So Jeremiah preached against the sins of Judah and predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile. He, he, it must be actually neat for a prophet, you know, like not that he was glad about it. He actually wrote a whole book lamenting the, the, um, the pain that the people were in. But it's kind of neat. Like the Lord promised, and, the Lord, and he saw it. And his message, we um, will actually get to a text today in our sermon, where um, Jeremiah is just encouraging the people. You know, God was faithful to discipline you, as he said that he would. He will also be faithful to restore you, as he promised he would. So yet Jeremiah also spoke powerful words of encouragement and hope during the dark days of the siege. So let me give you an example here. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know this verse is very misquoted. <laughs> what is the context of that? He says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Why is he saying that? Because they didn't have a future and a hope. So God was trying to encourage them and to comfort them. These words form part of a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the people already experiencing God's discipline. The exiles of 797 B.C. All right, so in spite of the devastating consequences of Judah's disobedience, God's final word is not of judgment but of hope. Nevertheless, even though God's deliverance is certain, it will not be immediate. That's what the, the, verses, the verse before talks about. But most, of, if not all, the New Testament letters are situational or occasional, meaning that they were written to address specific situations faced by the churches. For instance, Colossians, for example, you remember that we're studying this, it is written to a group of believers battling a false teaching that um, gave Christ a place, but not a supreme place that he rightly had. So Paul writes to refuse this, refute this false teaching by emphasizing the absolute supremacy of Christ. In a similar fashion, John wrote in his first letter to Christians, wrestling with what many scholars believe to be uh, Gnosticism or proto-Gnosticism. It was a central to this heresy, was the belief that the spirit was good, but the matter was evil. So the body was evil. Anything physical was evil. So you could probably guess some of the implications of this line of thinking. If the physical 
expression is, is um, sinful, then Christ couldn't have been a real human because he didn't have any evil. <laughs> so a person could either treat their material body harshly or indulge it. Well, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Salvation meant escape from the body and was accomplished by means of special knowledge. That's where gnosis comes from. Like, so Gnosticism is from gnosis. That means knowledge. So if you have this special knowledge that the others don't have, then you're good, you're good to go. In the case of 1 John, knowing the historical cultural context will clarify the main themes of the letter. The genuine incarnation of Christ, in other words, God really did come as a human being. That's why John, in his letter, keeps saying, he came in the flesh, he came in the flesh. <clears throat> All right, now I'm going to stop here, and I'll, I will play a video. Um, there, was, there were more interesting things. You know, we got some minutes. Let me, let me close with one more point. The geography and setting. Geography and setting. This, this, I, I cannot overemphasize this. <laughs> um, sometimes we read about all these biblical places, and we're just like, whoa, you know, it doesn't mean anything to me. I, when I went to Israel, it was like the Bible was alive. It was like, I, boy, what, what is that? And obviously, most of us won't have the chance. I, like, for instance, I wish I could go to Ephesus. Never been there. <laughs> I can read about it, and it's just so amazing how today we can have biblical atlases with pictures and illustrations that helps us to envision what this is happening, why this is happening. All right, so geography. Um, sometimes nor knowing more about the geography or topography assumed by the text can help you to grasp its meaning. Jesus starts his parable of the Good Samaritan with this statement. All right, remember this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. All right. And next slide. For whatever reason, it's not working for me. But can you guys pass it to the next one? Yep, there you go. Journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. It would certainly go down from Jericho, Jerusalem to Jericho. Do you realize? So here is, um, let me see. Yeah. Here's Jerusalem in the mountain, and here's Jericho, all the way down there. Quite a decline. It's 2,500 feet going down above the sea level to be about uh, 800 below the sea level. So here's sea level, and here is Jericho. It's near the Dead Sea. So in addition, the trip would have not been a walk in the park. So that um, man that was on the road that got mugged, the distance is almost 20 miles and would, it would take you through some rugged desert country that offered plenty, plenty of hiding places for thieves. So you, I don't know, it's small here, but um, you can see how rough that piece of land is for you to walk in. 
and many thieves hide hid in there. So knowing the geography helps us understand how easy it would have been to pass by a dying man and how troublesome it would have been to be a loving neighbor. If I stop here, maybe I'm going to be the next one be mugged. I got to just get out of this place as soon as I can. Now, the Lord illustrates that, okay, there was this Samaritan, this foreigner, that he took compassion and he did stop on a way, put himself in a dangerous arms to save this other person, to help this other person. All right, now, um, I have a video here of, um, of people that I don't necessarily agree with, but I want to expose you to this discussion, all right? So we got Piper in there, um, not the big fan of everything that Piper says, um, and we have D.A. Carson, which I, I'm more leaning what he is trying to say here, um, and I think Tim Keller is there, but he doesn't speak. <laughs> so um, let me maybe go next. The next slide has it. All right, so they both bring points, right? So what I want to do, maybe I want to hear your impressions of, uh, maybe let's hear your positive impressions of, of Piper's point here, all right? Um, and just let's keep the comments short, <laughs> all right? So, all right, what, what, what is a good point that Piper is bringing here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should spend more time in the Word. It, that, why was that that we took so, I don't know, like how many, four classes? Just to, how do you read the passage? Right? Be, because a lot of things will be just out there in the open. We just have to be looking for these things and trying to understand there. And even within the, the book, oh, I don't understand here, but later on in the, in the letter, Paul makes it clear what he was trying to say. Or, I didn't understand for Samuel at first, but then now I see his point. So, you know, there, yes, if we want to encourage people to study the Bible, we want them to study scripture. Um, the, all these other things are uh, important for our understanding, um, but they are not essential for you to, otherwise we would never open our Bibles <laughs> until we had a, a, something else there. All right, now what would be the problem with Piper's point here? He's, and I hope that you notice this. Um, D.A. Carson is a very wise man, and he said, you know, Piper, what are you doing? You're getting the extreme example of people that never studies <laughs> the historical context and people that uh, only studies historical context. And both can err. Actually, next week, we're going to see some issues if you put too much emphasis on historical context. But yet, we shouldn't think in extremes, right? I, it's any time that you have an argument with someone and they bring you to the extreme points. And like, well, is this the average pastor, really? Generally speaking, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and being judicious, you know, Kathy's saying here, we, we need a balance. That uh, there'll be times when we come across a text that um, it's a bit confusing. I, I mean, I remember getting through 1 Samuel, 
and um, Saul prophesying, getting naked. Just, what, what is happening here? You know, it's just weird. Uh, we need something to help us understand what, what's going on there. So uh, we need these sources. Um, now, they are not authoritative, and um, they can always be called into question because they're not the Bible, all right? I, uh, there's an article here. Maybe I'll email this to you just so you, you have a, a good um, understanding of this. So Carson has a, an example, for instance, where people can get things really wrong if they don't do their due diligence. So um, regarding Revelation 3.15, it's a verse that is probably very familiar to most of you. Revelation 3.15. I know your deeds, so he's writing to the church in Laodicea, right? and says that I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. All right. A fair bit of nonsense has been written about the exalted Christ's words to the Laodiceans. Many have argued that this means that God would, God prefers people who are spiritually cold above those who are spiritually lukewarm. I would rather you be cold or hot, and you're thinking, oh, okay, so being lukewarm is the bad thing, but being cold is not that bad. Even though his first preference is for those who are spiritually hot. Ingenious explanations are then offered to defend the proposition that a spiritual coldness is a superior state than um, spiritual lukewarmness. All of this can confidently be abandoned once responsible archaeology has made its contribution. So Laodicea, and I, I didn't have a picture there, um, is shared, they shared the Lycus Valley with two other cities in the New Testament. So Colossae is one of them, and you remember that the church in Colossae uh, shared the letter to the Colossians to Laodicea, and then Laodicea shared their letter to the Colossians. And um, Colossae was the only one who had fresh, cold water. They had a spring water there. Hierapolis was the other big non-city in that same valley, and they were known for their hot springs and became a place to which people would resort to enjoy these healing baths. By contrast, Laodicea put up, put up, put up with water that was neither cold or useful, nor hot uh, and useful. It, it was lukewarm, loaded with chemicals and with an intentional reputation for being nauseating. You see, the water they had there was nauseating. And people were just put in their mouth and spit it out. So that brings us to Jesus' assessment of the Christians there. They were not useful in any sense. <laughs> That's his point. 
They were simply disgusting, nauseating, so nauseating that he would vomit them away. The interpretation would be clear enough to anyone living in the Lycus Valley in the first century. You know, for the people living there, it would make perfect sense, this illustration. It takes a bit of the background information to make the point clear today. So historical context may sometimes be necessary to understand the Bible accurately. That doesn't mean that these kind of studies don't have dangers. There are dangers, but knowing those dangers, we can already kind of plan ahead and say, okay, what are the things that I should be looking for here so I don't um, get off the path? Um, so the, uh, Andy Nazali was the writer of this article that I'm going to share with you, and he, um, he has here a, a really good point. He says, um, if we can't understand the Bible truly, then why don't all humans completely agree with each other on what the Bible teaches? Why is that? The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with finite, sinful humans. Were it not for the effects of the fall on our heads and hearts, we would interpret the Bible the same way. We would have no problem interpreting it. (laughs) But because sin has so affected our understanding, that's why you see people going off track. But the point to stress here is the Bible's central message is clear. And the Spirit is the one that illuminates our understanding. So he says, uh, he concludes here, So yes, background information is sometimes necessary to understand the Bible, and this should provoke us to study God's Word and His world more diligently. Thank God for the abundant resources that we have today to do that. Right? Don't miss next week. We're going to see some of what these resources are. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word that is uh, written in a clear way. Lord, we're thankful for the doctrine of perspicuity, which says that scripture is clear and understandable and its message could be applied. And yet, Lord, you have revealed yourself in a historical, cultural background. And I I do pray, Father, that you would give us a desire to learn and to understand these things so that we would have a fuller appreciation for what you have written and how that really impacts our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for what you have revealed to us in your precious Son's name that we pray, amen.